If the best way to predict the future is to create it, what do the folks who are on the cutting edge of our industry see coming in the future? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. This is the Shift Shapers podcast, connecting benefits advisors with thought leaders and entrepreneurs who are shaping the shifts in the industry. And now, here's your host, David Saltzman. And to help us answer that question, we have invited the venerable Dave Chase, creator and co-founder of Health Rosetta. Interesting, if you go back uh, in the archives, you'll find his um, TEDx talk, which I love the title of. It's called Healthcare Has Stolen the American Dream. Here's how we take it back. And that seems like a great place to jump off for our conversation. Welcome, Dave. Great to be on here. Thanks for having me. Our, our pleasure. So just a little bit about your journey, because we always find it interesting to see kind of how people got to be doing what they're doing. Well, I mean, I had a background in health IT, so I was broadly in healthcare, but the the story of why I am where I am now was really catalyzed by an unfortunate situation where I had a good friend that had a similar career tra- trajectory to mine and done a lot of the right things. Um, but unfortunately, she got sick. Uh, that led her to a cancer diagnosis. Unfortunately, it was the wrong diagnosis. And that's more common than you think, about one out of four, one out of five times that happens. And of course, that leads to the wrong treatment plan. And at the end of the day, left her uh, you know, ruined physically, financially, uh, uh, emotionally, you know, ultimately leaving behind a 10 year old daughter as a single mom. And that really put me on a journey to understand what was going on and realizing that it wasn't about bad doctors or bad nurses. It was a system failure. And I'd been a part of that system. Uh, of course, none of us intend to do that type of thing. And as I understood that, uh, you know, in the way I was raised, if you see a wrong and don't do something about it, you're complicit. So it put me on this quest and and I sort of tongue in cheek call myself an archaeologist because I just went digging, digging, digging. Like somebody has solved this problem. And and first of all, I had to understand the problem and then solve it. And so that ultimately led me to my life's work and really my calling and why I'm doing what I'm doing. And that that was the founding of Health, or the backstory for the founding of Health Rosetta? Yep. So w- when Health Rosetta first got founded, what did you set out to do? Was the mission always to try to educate advisors? Yeah, actually, before I founded or really conceived Health Rosetta, I was writing for Forbes, and I wrote an article as I was, you know, in a sense, it kind of chronicled my journey of learning. And I wrote this article, This Job Could Save America, referring to benefits brokers, benefits advisors. And I came to the conclusion it was the most underestimated role in the entire healthcare system, probably by extension, the entire U.S. economy. And they can either do incredible things and do all what we would hope health benefits would do, or they could lead to a situation like my friends and like, and unfortunately, she's not in a unique situation. You know, preventable medical mistakes are the third leading cause of death in America and that's all paid for, you know, by our benefit plans, our health plans. And that that's an avoidable situation the vast, vast, vast majority of the time. They even have a fancy word for the ones where they don't know what the cause is. They call them iatrogenic complications. And it's 
annually over 100,000. So it, 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 it's a huge problem. Now, what year was that back when you started Rosetta? Yeah, I mean, we officially started 2016. We launched in 2017 with the launch of a book I wrote in this space called The CEO's Guide to Restoring the American Dream. And so that's, I think, what a lot of people, you know, think of as the start of Health Rosetta is when we launched that Labor Day 2017, but kind of was so you were somewhat- ACA. Yeah, post-ACA. I mean, actually, the ACA kind of started the journey because I had detoured away from healthcare for a while and kind of got me back interested. It was like, wow, whether you agree or disagree with all the different facets, it looked to me like it was going to bring a lot of change. And healthcare has been very sclerotic and change is good, you know, and if you want to, you know, transform things. And so that kind of started me on this journey and it happened to coincide with my friend's uh, journey. And and really the other crystallizing moment was when I woke up to the news March 9th, 2016, that Bernie and Trump had won the Michigan primary. And I was like, hmm, this is not normal. Something's going on here. And when I unpacked that, uh, I was like, you know, you started hearing terms like populism. I'm like, what is that? You know, I kind of knew what it was. And when does it rise? Well, it rises when an economic depression uh, comes about. Well, what exactly is, you know, I kind of knew what an economic depression was, but not the exact definition. And one of the definitions of, is two or more years of wage stagnation decline. And by that point, I was like, oh my gosh, right? We For the working and middle class, they've had 30 years of that. You know, they'd gotten raises, but they'd all been eaten up by premium increases by healthcare. So essentially, you had more than half the workforce in a 30-year-long economic depression. Like, that's more than twice as long as 1930s Germany or our Great Depression. You're going to have some crazy stuff happen. doesn't make it right, but it makes it understandable. And that was really a crystallizing moment. Like, oh, man, this is a fixable problem. By that point, I'd found people who'd... Really, you know, as I kind of joke, you know, they found the Rosetta Stone, thus Health Rosetta, the name of the organization I started, because uh, they kind of cracked this indecipherable code, sort of like Egyptian hieroglyphics. Uh, so that was really a catalytic moment for me as well. Well, and there's no question for for a lot of us. I mean, that's when we started the podcast because they're, again, to your point, whether you agree with or disagree with or like or don't like ACA it really kicked the industry in the butt and the industry started looking for new things. But unfortunately, if I recall correctly, and you'll correct me if I, if I don't, by that time, we had run deductibles up through the ceiling. We had run copays through the ceiling and used them for the wrong reasons. And we had created a whole class of people who were functionally uninsured, exacerbated by the poor state of the economy. If, if that's your starting point, where do you go from there? How do you create a framework or what kind of framework do you create to say, hey, we're going to build a ladder and climb out of this? Yeah, I mean, that was the first piece that I wrote about healthcare when I came back was almost in you know, a time we're recording this almost exactly 13 years ago, uh, June 4th, 2010. I wrote a piece that ultimately was published in both Huffington Post and Forbes called Health Insurance's Bunker Buster. And it predicted uh, that uh, rates would go up at least 50%, uh, which they did, and then some. Um, and uh, the other piece of it was talking about direct primary care, which I looked at as kind of a, 
a microcosm of the way you climb out of it. And uh, what I did was start studying social movements and new product category introductions and revolutions. And probably the analogy that I drew on the most that I thought was useful, no analogy is perfect, of course, but is there's this LEED standards, L-E-E-D, that is a for buildings, you know, kind of the built environment. Mm-hmm. I thought of the built environment. It's kind of like healthcare, right? It's this really local thing. It's really entrenched. Yet over the last 25 years, the way we build buildings is radically different. Um, a new blueprint arose. And what uh, happened was professionals like architects got accredited and then they certified buildings. So you go to a building, oh, this is a LEED certified gold building. Well, that's much better, um, you know, more efficient. The, you know, the air is better. It's better for the surroundings. And I was like, oh, you know, we could do something like that. We could accredit, you know, the, the architects, you know, in air quotes of health plans, right? That's the health, you mm-hmm. know, the benefits brokers. They're the architects of the health plans. We could accredit them. And then we could certify health plans. And uh, we haven't quite done that yet, but we've made a major step in that direction recently where it was just weird, you know, when when I really delved into this space, um, I was like, where, where is the review of quality of a health plan? Why, we're spending trillions of dollars. Other than Medicare Advantage star ratings, there's, there's really no rating. And, you know, I just like kind of made a flippant comment like, I can get reviews for toenail clippers on Amazon. And and I went and actually looked and there was a pair of toenail clippers that are a set of toenail clippers that got 5,600 reviews. And we've got no reviews on trillions of dollars of spend. Um, and so that's one of the big things that we've worked on is how do you objectively mark value in health plans and get out of this mode that we're in today where we're driving down the healthcare road by looking in the rearview mirror, you know, otherwise known as claims. You know, it's kind of interesting, but if you know anything about uh, the distribution of spend, it's the outlier claims in a year that drive the big spending. And it's almost always different people. So looking in the rearview mirror is just not that useful. So we're like, okay, can we have a leading indicator? And essentially, it was a five-year journey to get to where we are now, to where we actually are confident. Uh, we we call it a plan grader, uh, basically where we can objectively mark value of health plans. And when you have a low grade, you have a very volatile plan. When you have a high grade, you have a low volatility plan. And it's far better for everybody involved, for the member, for the employer. And it's got to be better for the clinicians, too. They've been on the short end of the stick of a lot of this as well. So um, it's been a journey. This is not an easy thing to fix. Um, but just like you can rate buildings and, you know, if you look at what happened in the built environment, the old waned over time, the new rose over time. And there were particular locales, you know, places like Austin and Boulder and Portland that were early adopters in that. But now it's everywhere. You know, the largest developer in the world is the the federal government of the U.S. They use lead standards. Most states uh, for public buildings have lead standards. It's just it's just even if you don't get the standards, it's just the way things are built now. And so that's what we're really working on, kind of following that that blueprint. And, you know, again, not all the analogies are perfect, but it's informed a lot of what we're doing. 
Well, and, you know, unlike the toenail clippers on Amazon, on Amazon, if one sees toenail clippers that are $7 and toenail clippers that are $35, one might assume that the $35 clippers are better. That's not the case in healthcare. And it's so counterintuitive for the way we've all been brought up and, and think about things these days. How do you get past that? I know we, we talk about, I hate the word, but we talk about transparency until the cows yep. come home, but we're talking largely about price, not quality. Yeah. How, how yep. do you either get past that or meld the two so that there's some index or set of indices where a, a, a patient can find out both without having to go get a degree from MIT? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is such a paradox that, you know, the best way to slash healthcare spending is improve benefits and improve quality. And, you know, we talked a few minutes ago about how the third leading cause of of death in America is preventable medical mistakes. And, you know, one, the, the follow-on book that I wrote uh, after the CEO's guide was called The Opioid Crisis Wake-Up Call. It looked at the healthcare system through the prism of uh, the opioid crisis, and it really kind of answers that question because once you understand what works, and and it's frankly not a state secret that there's no well-functioning healthcare system in the world not built on proper primary care. You know, I remember interviewing uh, some of the pioneers in direct primary care. It's like, gosh, how is it that you have fifty percent fewer ER visits and fifty percent fewer surgeries and these sort of things? Like, well. If you actually talk to people and give them time, uh, they will almost always choose the least invasive option. And in that opioid crisis, um, you know, related book, uh, lower back pain was an example that I gave because it's the second most common reason people go to the doctor after cold and flu. And we mm -hmm. absolutely botch it. Uh, you know, the number one driver of uh, disability in America is lower back pain. The number one driver of opioid prescriptions is lower back pain, even though there's no evidence that that's the most effective treatment. It's high margin. It's a way to short-term mask pain while the underlying problem persists. Um, again, there's plenty of evidence that the most effective way of treating lower back pain, well, first of all, try to prevent it. You can work on that. But once it's happened, you know, a PT, things like that. And so there's catastrophic levels of prescriptions and uh, surgeries that are inappropriate. Even to this day, after all the awareness, we're about four or 5% of the, the world's population in the US, and we prescribe 80% of the opioids, even today. Yet when you find, like some of the early employers I found, uh, not when I was thinking about the opioid crisis, I went back to them and go, gosh, you know, you're, you've been doing this for 30 years in the case of Rosen Hotels. You've cumulatively saved over $500 million. It's not some flash in the pan. What are you doing around opioids? You know, what are your, your prescription levels? And they're like, well, I, well, we don't know. We'll go look. Um, and they never put in an anti-opioid program. They just had great primary care. Well, turns out they had prescription levels at one-sixth of the level of a typical U.S. employer. And... Again, they weren't trying to stop opioids. They were just following the evidence. And they have people with jobs that are very physically demanding. So if anything, they should have above average, um, you know, issues around lower back pain with maids and maintenance workers and so on. So 
if you just dig hard enough, you find the people who crack the code. And then really the puzzle is how do you get the word out? You know, I kind of go from, you know, archaeologist to Johnny Appleseed, right? I just want to spread the word. Like I didn't climb to the top of some mountain and cross my legs and dream this stuff up. It's out there. And, you know, when I wrote that book, I had to dig really hard to find uh, proven examples. Today, you know, kind of the sequel to the CEO's Guide was uh, a book we published about a year ago called Health Plan Heroes, the CEOs who restored the American dream. And we had to stop at 100 pages of case studies. We had in every imaginable industry, geography, large and small employers, public and private sector, and in rural urban settings. Of course, it's not, you know, the majority of the market yet, but it's just, it's out there and and there's nothing better than word of mouth to overcome that that obstacle because it does sound too good to be true. You know, I've, the subtitle, the CEO's guide almost sounds like a goofy infomercial, you know, how to deliver world-class healthcare at half the cost. Well, people are actually doing it and you can see it with your own eyes. Well, I mean, I guess kind of rhetorical or semi-rhetorical question, because you and I and all of our listeners know the answer is if that's the case, why haven't the major carriers that we all know, why haven't they adopted this stuff? And we all know that it's because the, the incentives are completely and totally misaligned. So if, if the goal is to get more primary care, whether it's direct primary care or some other mode we haven't thought of. And as you know, DPC isn't new. The American Academy of, I think, Pediatricians thought of a a, a medical home model years before there were even HMOs. And it it just didn't go anyplace. So they understood that care continuum and what values it could reap. So are we going to be stuck at the point of marrying direct primary care to a a, a self-funded plan and some of the direct pay options that I'm starting to hear about to get people to understand that, you know, maybe using their insurance plan all the time isn't the best option for them. Yeah. I mean, one of the the chapters that I wrote in the CEO's uh, guide to the American, uh, you know, restoring the American dream was you're in the healthcare business, whether you like it or not. And I will, in kind of the corollary is, you're already the insurer, even in a so-called fully insured, I guarantee, you know, plan, Mm -hmm. I guarantee you, if you have a bad claims year, they're going to claw back that money. Um, So you're already carrying the risk. And so what are you going to do about it? Um, And we've got decades of evidence, as you said, you know, in that rhetorical question, the status quo has no interest in solving this problem. They're, they're doing well since the ACA passed, the big carriers collectively have their market cap has increased nearly a trillion dollars. They have done really well. Um, and so it's always the case that a new uh, model has to uh, replace the old model. It's not, you know, let's try to like fix around the edges uh, this catastrophically broken uh, system. I mean, it's it's broken if you want great outcomes. It's not broken if you want great financial returns from a Wall Street perspective. Um, and, you know, we didn't get smartphones by putting, you know, e- you know, icon stickers on rotary phones. You know, you have to do a reset. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. I and mean, we talked about this offline, but you and I hear all the time, well, healthcare in America is broken. And I smile because it's not broken. It's working perfectly. <laughs> it just wasn't designed to work perfectly for patients. Yeah. It was designed to work perfectly for almost all of the other interests that send your plan 
whatever kind of plan it is, a bill. Yeah. So where do we go from here? What do you see in the near term happening? And then we'll spend our last few minutes talking about what do you see maybe a little bit longer term? Because your vantage point is a little bit different than most folks. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, they kind of relate to each other in that, as we were talking about with LEAD, there are certain locales that are early adopters. And so it's already happening. And what we really believe in or see in action, you know, we've got some communities like in the Midwest where, you know, it's it's not necessarily the major metro, but, you know, you draw a, a circle, you know, 45 minutes to 90 minutes outside of major metros. That's one of the areas that's quite hot. And within those locales, you, you find that there's this kind of rule of threes, in fact, even a little better than this, where... Uh, a given advisor that we accredit comes up to speed, cuts their teeth, uh, maybe do three of these three employer plans. Nobody notices, but you're building knowledge, capacity, track record, and understanding the local landscape in this context. And then you get, you know, three squared, nine, right? Some of the providers are actually, they're not put off by this card that doesn't have some expensive, fancy, you know, national logo. They love it. They've done some direct contract. They pay timely. We can solve problems for them. Um, you're getting a case study or two, some little buzzes generating. And then the real tipping point is 3 cube 27. In fact, we found it's even before that, where you can, you know, the like any industry, if you want a free status quo, you use fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And, you know, the industry is very good at doing that to free status quo. Mm -hmm. It just stops working when people can see it with their own eyes. And when what we see there in places like that is it often starts with the private sector. And in that case, you had a, you know, manufacturer, chemical company, services company, and then the county did it. And then the school district did it. And then the city did it. And uh, what's interesting, a lot of the people in the private sector tend to think of themselves as more nimble and sharper, you know, than the public sector. Mm -hmm. And they're like, wait a second, the school district did this? and you know, we've had examples where in less than a year, they'd saved more money than the entire school levy that had failed in a vote. And it really saved the schools. And so that really generates a word of mouth. And so that's what's happening today. But I think it also sets the stage for what happens in the future. That that particular um, model, and, and we really believe in not singular things becoming massive like what venture capital likes. It's more of replicating and adapting. So that that particular model with that particular benefits advisor has already spawned four new geographies after that because people heard about it. You know, maybe they were on one of our, you know, came to one of our, um, you know, annual gatherings and heard about it. It's like, man, we want some of that. Um, and we're the other thing that's exciting that's, you know, that's emerging is even though there's been a lot of consolidation on the healthcare delivery side, there still are independent, uh, you know, surgery centers. You know, we talked about direct primary care. Um, and if they're still independent, they're independent for a reason, right? They want, they don't want to be sold, you know, sold out to a giant health system or private equity. And we are really aligned with them. And what's interesting there is their employers too, right? You know, a, you know, medical mm -hmm. group or employers. And so it's a really powerful story to then go out and say, wouldn't you like the health plan? You know, Mr. Mrs. You know, business person or mayor, 
or city manager have the same health plan that your doctor and their family gets? That's kind of what we see now emerging and sort of, it's still early days. So there's a lot of, you know, replication of that to have, you know, fully reach everybody in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really what's, what's happening now. Well, you know, it's the pioneers are always the ones with the arrows stuck in them. I, I remember talking to my friend Keith Smith years ago, and we we just interviewed Keith again to kind of get an update. Yep. And boy, when he started the Oklahoma Surgery Center, he had more arrows than he could count, and he took flack from almost every constituency. Yeah. And yet he's still there, and his organization, the Free Market Medical Association, grew, I think their first annual meeting was like in Keith's parlor or someplace. Yeah. And now they've got hundreds and thousands of people. So it is spreading, but it's taken its own sweet time to to do it. Um, I, I hope, you know, that you'll come back in another couple of years and talk to us again about kind of what you've seen and, and where you think the industry is going. But we really appreciate your insights. And thank you so much for spending some time talking yeah, with our audience. No, it's, it's been great to chat with you and and, you know, I think by the time we chat next time, the generational shift that's also catalyzing that will be even more uh, in the mainstream. You know, the the millennials and Gen Z are really in decision-making roles now. And that's mm-hmm. also having a big impact into the future. Yeah, it's an awesome time to be in the business. There's so much change coming that I, I just am trying to, trying to live better so I can get to stay around and see it. Sounds like a good idea. Anyway, Dave Chase. creator and um, co-founder of Health Rosetta. Dave, thanks again for your time. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Shift Shapers, LLC. The content and images of this podcast may not be used without our express written permission. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.